HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Cheese State University. Cheese State University was created for dedicated cheese professionals seeking to deepen their knowledge, sharpen their skills, and build connections. Join them in the Ivy League of Cheese Education at cheesestateuniversity.com. Welcome to Cutting Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kara Warren. And on today's episode, we take a look back at a throwback episode, Greg Blaze, dating back to 2014, almost a decade ago. In this episode, Greg chatted with Mike Lee of Twig Farm, Vermont, and Judy Schott of Caprio Goat Cheese, Indiana, to learn the differences between the two goat cheese makers. Each farm milks the alpine breed of goat, but has very different cheese-making styles. We thought this would be a very fun listen, especially for the spring, and we hope you dig it as much as we did. Cheers and enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd, live on the Heritage Radio Network. This is your host, Greg Blaze, and we're here with the second installment of our Old School, New School series. Last week, we talked to a couple of producers of cow's milk cheeses in the U.S., and today we'll be talking to two goat cheesemakers and getting their input about the state of artisanal American cheesemaking, both past and present. Representing one of the pioneers of artisanal farmstead goat cheese making is Judy Shad of Capriole Goat Cheese, who's on the line from Greenville, Indiana. How are you today, Judy? Great, and how are you? I'm fantastic. We also have Michael Lee on the line. He is the owner and head cheesemaker at Twig Farm in West Cornwall, Vermont, and he will be representing the burgeoning generation of youthful goat cheese makers. Thanks for chatting with us today, Michael, and how are you? I'm doing pretty well, thanks. It's good to have you. So here's a question I have for both of you to start off, um, and it's simple. It's why goats? And, uh, Judy, I'm going to ask you to field that one first. Why did you start making goat cheese? You're making me laugh. Um, <laughs> uh, I've asked myself that question, why goats, many times, and I never really came up with a wonderful answer except that I like them. <laughs> and um, I liked the cheese because uh, the, the disadvantages are many. I think you have to really love the animal. You have to love the milk they produce, and you have to love the cheeses that you make from that milk in order to, uh, in order to do it because it's, it's not easy. So I fell into it, um, you know, 30 years ago, 35 years ago as a 4-H project for my children, and uh, pretty soon goats multiply very quickly, tend yeah. to have twins and triplets and so i'm swimming in milk and i've got you know city kids because we've moved to the country from the city who 
don't want to drink the milk, no matter how you disguise it. In. Sure. Um, and I discovered, uh, you know, French cheeses and then um, cheeses from uh, Letty Kilmoyer at Westfield Farm. And yeah. I fell in love. And I thought, well, this is why there's goat milk. So you were a, you you met uh, Letty. You you went to the Westfield Farms to purchase cheese, or do you you met her at a? How did you come to meet to meet Miss Kilmoyer? Well, first I met Ricky Carroll, the of mother course. of us all, who yeah. wrote her little cheese-making made-easy book, which we all learned to make cheese from in our yeah. kitchens. And Letty, um, she had introduced me to Letty and several others. And so I wanted to taste these cheeses, which were, of course, so much better than mine because I knew nothing. <laughs> and, um, and that was how it all began. And Letty let me come and spend some time with her and make cheese. And so I decided I could do this. And Interestingly enough, I, I, know, um, I know the Kilmores myself. I think uh, I visited that farm because it's, it's very, very close to where I grew up when I was about 10 years old. And I'm pretty sure I served them ice cream at the store that I worked at, which was the first job I've ever worked. Um, but that was a long, long time ago. So I guess I'm old school, too. Or, or, uh, or <laughs> oh, I'm maybe. so glad someone is. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Michael, I wanted to ask you the same question. Why, why goats? Why were you drawn to making goat's milk cheese? Um, gosh, um, I think I'll, uh, a little bit of echoing of um, what uh, Judy just said. It's uh, uh, I like them. Um, I think I wouldn't be still doing it ten years later if I, I didn't like them. Absolutely. Um, but um, the reason why I think um, kind of is uh, framed by a decision that I, I wanted to farm, and I wanted to farm in a particular place in Vermont where it seemed to me. Um, there were a lot of farms around that were milking cows and doing it pretty well. And in some ways, they had spoken for most of the best um, agricultural land. And the land that I had was um, uh, very ledgy and um, not uh, not exactly um, suitable for, for cows. It could have worked with sheep, but I'd had experience working with sheep, and I think I'd had enough experience working with sheep. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and uh, and so I, I, you know, I said, well, uh, let's check out goats, and uh, I've enjoyed goats. They're, uh, I like the scale that they are. Um, working with them, relate to them very much as a person to an animal. I don't know. I I enjoy that, and um, and I love the cheese that you can make with their milk. But both of you guys have said the same thing. So why, why, if I can follow up, why why do you like goats so much? What what in goats? Do you see, I guess, in yourselves? <laughs> Judy. They're interesting personalities, aren't they? <laughs> well, they um, are in my, in my experience meeting them, but I want to ask you, Judy, <laughs> and, uh, why, why, why are you guys like goats? I don't know. <laughs> well, I think, you know, if you let them, they would sit in your lap, for really? one thing. Um, they'd, you know, eat at the dining room table with you <laughs> or stand on top of it. Um, and I, I, I do believe that for people who don't come from a firm farm background, um, you know, where you probably wouldn't do anything that silly, uh, it, they are just charming. And the personalities are so individual, and they're, um, they're your friends. 
uh, they're easy to bond with, unlike sheep. I'm sure you'd probably echo that, too, correct? Michael, is that yeah, true? Definitely, yeah, definitely. Um, easy to bond with. They're, they're the most personable of uh, livestock that I've, you know, I've ever had the pleasure to work with. And that's, you know, that's a good, and sometimes it's a complicating factor, um, you know, because it's, you know, you are still a farmer, and you still have to make uh, decisions about them uh, based on more than just your feelings. Uh, yeah, but, absolutely. Um, well, that, there's that. I mean, and obviously, you, you, you mentioned that you, you enjoyed the scale. Um, is, that, is that something that you considered the amount of milk and the amount of uh, animals that you'd have to handle? Um, well, I was thinking more of the actual the, the scale of a goat being, you know, a, a, you know, a, a mature uh, Milk, our mature milking goats are about 130 pounds. Which, uh-huh. um, is um, you know, it's it's a size I can relate to. I mean, I'm, sure. I'm larger than that, but my wife's not. So, sure. um, you know, it's it's just it's uh, that I guess, and the fact that um, you have to um, you have to be gentle in a way with them because they. Um, you could overwhelm them in, in a way that you couldn't with a cow, for instance. Um, you can scare them. You know, so I think um, you know that it uh, it provokes uh, a um, a different response in me. I guess is that the same for you, Judy? Yeah, I I think um, they they have very long memories, and um, if they're not treated if they're not treated well, they uh, they remember. Um, you know, we've had. People, we had people here off and on who we let go for that reason because we, they, the personalities did not mesh. Didn't mesh with the animals. With the animals at all, they were, um, you, you know, they did try to treat them. I, I suppose that they'd worked on dairy farms and they'd worked with cows, which were a little harder to move and handle. Um, sometimes they, you know, ghosts just don't respond to that, and they do respond. Uh, most of them do respond to gentleness, but I think all of us who have had them would would find that that we select those and we select animals on that basis too. You know, we tend to have animals in our herds. Uh, we we keep those offspring whose mothers, um, you know, work well in that kind of an environment. They uh, they are hard. I, I had a friend one time who had said they who had had goats forever and. She said, in some ways, goats are their worst enemies because it's, it's very hard to make decisions on who stays and who goes right. because you love them all. Well, and that's difficult. Well, also, um, I was, uh, wanted to go to the, to the nuts and bolts of what you do. Are, are, are both of you are, um, are, are breed specific? I know, Michael, you have, um, you have alpine goats and you have a couple of sanans and a Nubian. Is that it? Well, that... I, I, I used to. Um, they're pretty much, I've just got alpines at this point. Uh, there's, I guess there's one son and cross left, and uh, you know, she's about eight years old. Um, so uh, she's probably not going to be with us that much longer. Um, but the rest are alpines. And um, are those, did you choose those goats, or do they, they, they give you a particular, they, they work with the terrain well, and, and they help you make the kind of cheese you like to make? You know, I'd like to say that those, you know, those sound like great reasons, um, but uh, the first and foremost reason was probably aesthetics. Um, really? Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. I was looking, I said, I want brown goats, and I could find Well, Judy, you have the same type of, uh, you have this, you have the same mix, right? Did you have the, the... Yes, yeah, we started with an alpine herd, and, you know, the children showed them, and I fell in love with them, and then... 
of course, I, I'm the same. We call those brown ones chamoise. Okay. And um, and they're the most French, don't you think, of all the goats? Yeah. Um, you know, I love those um, those brown goats with the black dorsal stripes. But I think beyond that, um, I found them to be the hardiest of the breeds. They're a little more aggressive um, than some of the other breeds. And they yeah. tend to be, if you have 10, 11-year-old animals in your herd, uh-huh. they're usually going to be alpine. Right. They're the, they're the toughest. They can tough it out that they're long. They're tough, yes. Well, that's interesting because I, I find that as, as a purchaser of your cheese a long time, um, you make uh, cheeses um, that remind me a lot of uh, of some French cheeses that I bought. And so your, your goats are French, and uh, your cheeses are, to me, obviously, as well. Hey, we hope so. <laughs> <laughs> but they're also very distinctly yours. Um, but I was wondering if, um, you know, if when you began, uh, because I know you you work in a you work in a different spot than uh, than Michael is. You 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 drop down into. Um, you know, in, into you know, thirty minutes from Louisville, Kentucky, and to a place that I'm mm-hmm. I'm not sure maybe had those type mm-hmm. of cheeses around before. Um, right. And you've stuck with the same type of cheese. Um, you know, your recipes are 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 known, and and uh, your cheeses are known. I was wondering if that was what kind of what led you to make that that decision. Um, well, you, you know, the terrain thing is an interesting question. We live in an area called Kentuckyana, which really means yes. nowhere. Uh, okay. <laughs> we're not really Kentucky. We kind of fell off the end of the state in Indiana. But it's it's very similar kind of terrain. It's uh, limestone. It's rocky. It's hill country uh, in the hills above the river. And uh, except for the weather, <laughs> which is, you know, tends to be not quite as cold as uh, in the wintertime, it, it is um, it's very similar. And okay. it's kind of bourbon country. Well, yeah. Uh, you know, it's that limestone thing. Water's important here. But um, I, I think that those were the cheeses that um, I'm passionate about. Those were the cheeses, those ripened uh, goats were the ones that I fell in love those with. Those are the ones that you and like. I love them. I don't make anything. Well, I do make a few things. I'm not crazy about it. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I love those. I call them the girls. The girls. Uh, because I think they're lady cheeses. Oh. And they're delicate, and they just rock my world. Well, nice. Getting your world rocked is great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Michael, you make a very different type of cheese than Judy does. And uh, what inspired you to make the kinds of cheese that you make in Vermont? Um, there were other well, couple of uh, things, I guess, that you could say inspired or pointed me in that direction. One, um, I just... I had a desire, and it's not an ideological desire. It was just uh, just uh, just a desire to make raw milk cheeses, and um, it seemed not very feasible to make a, um, a lactic mold ripened cheese uh, out of raw milk and sell it commercially. Uh, so I kind of I can uh, understand that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I just kind of started. I, I was working at a cheese shop, um, and um, and I kind of just explored all of the possibilities and I kind of um, really enjoyed some of the goat's milk and mixed milk and uh, cheeses from both Piedmont and, and Savoie and yes I, um, uh, I'm sorry and that's kind of that's where the inspiration came from and I said I think I can make cheeses like that with goat's milk um, and that's you know that's what I set out to do that was when you were at Formaggio 
in, yeah, and yeah. you were eating uh, Persier and things like that. Uh, Pers- um, where I always yeah, thought Persier, that's what the uh, and Persier de Tien and, yeah, and then um, just all the sort of little uh, obscure um, uh, Thomas from Piedmont as well. It's just um, you know those you know those things. Um, you know, I looked into how you make how you would make Persier de Tien, and I said, geez. I don't think I could do that because I'd have to make cheese every day. And yes, you would. Be me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, you would. You know, so I said, well, I'll I'll see if there's some you know some other cheeses. And so you know, I just kind of dug around and dug around, and and then when I got access to milk, I just kind of played with it. Now, Judy, um, you know, you you guys, um, you switched from uh, from raw to uh, to pasteurized, right. Um, right? And then why did, why exactly did you do that? What what mm-hmm. made you switch um, switch? Well, you know, I was just as passionate about the raw milk cheese, of course, uh, of at course. that point too. But I wasn't I wasn't doing the style of aged cheeses that 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 you're doing at Twig. Um, mine, uh, you know, one of the huge issues with goat milk, and I don't want to belabor this point, is that it takes six or seven times the amount of animals to get the same amount of milk you're getting out of, cow, out of a cow. Sure. Which is, you know, explains the expense of those cheeses, but it also exp- explains the expense of the production of those cheeses as well. And so we wanted a higher moisture cheese, and those are, um, those are a little more finicky in terms of safety issues. So for 10 and 12 years, we did make them from raw milk, and uh, and then I think it was a number of things. I became more and more concerned about the safety factors, and we did more and more testing. And it got to the point where we were testing for, you know, every batch for everything all the time. And That's we a lot of work. And, well, it was a lot of work, and with and you know, it was lab work. So that became. Mm-hmm. That contributed to the expense of the cheese. So, My, Michael, do you have that same thing that goes on? Do you have to do, do you, because you make only raw milk cheese, do you, uh, do you find that you have to, to test all the time? We, we test uh, frequently. We don't test every batch for everything, um, but we do, we do have a regular testing program, and it, does, it definitely adds, up, uh, to the, adds to the expense of the cheese. You know, it's, um, a, a battery of tests on any one batch of milk is going to be uh, at least $30. And sure. If the size of the uh, batch is about uh, thirty pieces of cheese, well, that's another dollar for each piece of cheese. Judy, what, uh, when, when exactly did you decide to switch from uh, from uh, raw to pasteurized? Uh, we did this about two years ago, and that was also at the time uh, when there were, <laughs> there was a lot of uh, scrutiny um, on these cheeses, and we felt. Uh, I think that one of the biggest factors, Michael, is that your cheeses are hard cheeses. Sure. Yeah. And, um, hard, and yeah. ours have a pretty high moisture content. I, what, what sort of yields, for instance, what percentage um, milk to, to cheese do you oh, get? What kind of yield am I getting? Right now they're on pasture, and it is, uh, it's awful. Uh, green cheese, I think we're, we're lucky if we get 11%. Yeah. That's low. And so... Our percentage would be a little bit higher on ours, and you know they um, ours kind of stay softer and get uh, get a little runny. They're they're a hybrid. They're they don't really fit in any real category. Yeah, I mean, um, that's, but that's, that that yield for ours is you know we'll lose another twenty five to twenty eight percent in the aging process on, right, on our cheeses. Right. So. 
So that's big. And, and I think when you're dealing with a milk that is expensive to produce, at the time we, we sort of started doing that to absorb the spring milk supply beyond the fresh cheeses, when the flush came in, that was when we were making a lot of our aged cheeses. Right. Yeah. Absolutely, that's those are those are extremely um, extremely interesting points. I think it's uh, I think you know it, it's interesting to me for me to note them. I, I wonder, Michael, if you'll ever if you'll ever get to a point where you feel you need to to pasteurize. I mean, I I find that I find that whole thing to be quite interesting. That's yeah, I, I mean, uh, I don't think you know if I continue making the cheeses that I'm making, I would feel compelled to pasteurize based on our scale and what I, the amount of testing I do and what I find in our milk now, um, I think it would probably be a regulatory um, directive that would, that would force me to pasteurize, and then I would probably rethink like, the, whole, the whole operation um, because um, it, it would change the possibilities for the kind of cheese I would make if I were pasteurizing. Uh, Absolutely. I think that's, that's really a valid point. And I think moisture content is um, a huge, don't you think it's a huge issue as far as safety is concerned? Oh, my gosh, yeah. I mean, there's, there are raw milk cheeses with, with moisture contents that, you know, that, yeah, they, they get them to 60 days, but I, I, get, a little, I get a little sketched out about it. Yeah, <laughs> would, of course. I prefer some of these cheeses were sold younger, you know. It's just um, what happens with that moisture content over an extended period of time at um, cool temperatures is, um, you know, uh, well, it's not anybody's guess they've seen. <laughs> well, it's not necessarily a good thing. Well, guys, we're going to have to take a short break, but um, I think it's great that you guys are, uh, are so engaged with each other about uh, the cheesemaking process. So we'll be right back and uh, continue our, our talk. Thanks so much. This episode is brought to you by Cheese State University. Cheese State University was created for dedicated cheese professionals seeking to deepen their knowledge, sharpen their skills, and build connections. It feels like a gift to be able to give this gift to people because I know that from my own experiences, I know how valuable, consolidated, mm -hmm. incredible training resources are. They offer an in-depth education on all things cheese, as well as an active network for peer support and career development. You can pop over to the Quad, which is our social networking and engagement app. Um, and so that's a really fun and dynamic aspect of Cheese State University. Cheese State's three-part course is designed for seasoned pros and entry-level mongers alike and covers all the skills one needs to perform on the cheese counter. The structure of Cheese State University is all based on the Cheese State University Field Guide. Um, and that is a three-volume resource. It's all digital online. At the end of the course, students will be ready to ace the field guide assessment and earn their Cheese State Scholar Certificate. Another resource is a video series where we tackle sort of like these thornier questions that you can get on the cheese counter, like what is rennet and like why is this cheese so expensive and can pregnant people even eat cheese? At Cheese State, you're among experts, you're among scholars, you're among cheese lovers, and most importantly, you are a monger. Join them in the Ivy League of Cheese Education at CheeseStateUniversity.com. Coming this spring, we're working on something big for opening soon. Opening a restaurant can sometimes take months or even years. So I have this one consulting client that's been three months away from opening for the past year. And I had a calendar reminder show up today, and the reminder was that our goal was to open tomorrow. But this spring, you'll be able to hear it in just a few hours. 
on March 30th, he had passed away. And then on March 31st, he had come back to life. And then on April 2nd, he had passed away again. And I was like, okay, my regards to the family. I don't even know how to receive this information. So tune in as we follow one of Brooklyn's best and brightest young chefs and restaurateurs on their journey from start to open doors. Alex, you need to put more money in. We're out. We can't pay anybody. He is the worst. Oh my (laughs) God, that guy. It's the build. Subscribe to Opening Soon from Heritage Radio Network, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to our old school, new school discussion of uh, artisanal goat meat, goat cheese makers. We're here with uh, Judy Shad and Michael Lee of uh, Capriole and uh, Twig, respectively. I felt bad interrupting you guys, and I think it's fantastic that you were talking, and I just sort of got lost in listening to what you were you were saying. And um, I wanted to tell you that that led me directly into my next question for, for both of you. And um, that was um, – and I'll start with you, Judy um, – a sense of uh, a sense of uh, of community amongst uh, amongst cheesemakers. I wonder when you started to do this, um, what was the community of people that you were around that made the cheese, and how did how did you find the communication between cheesemakers? You know, was was the your mentor um, willing to give up the information you wanted? How did you get started, and what was your community like back then? Well, I think um, people have always been very. There are no secrets, really. I mean, um, you know, there's only so many recipes that (laughs) basic recipes, and we all give it our own treatment. But um, so, from from some points of view, we shared a lot of information. But there were other things um, that we, you know, there was always a line you didn't cross. But what line was that? Well, for instance, um, when I went to work with Letty, uh, what we made was basic, fresh, the fresh white stuff that everybody thinks of as goat cheese. You know, there's millions of them, but they say, I want the goat cheese. That's what they mean. Um, I think that that was, she was more than willing to share, and that was the basis of everything else they did. So that was the critical one. But um, but no, we didn't talk about her blue cheeses. We didn't talk about some of the other things they did. Those were um, those were theirs, and and there was a lot of respect among cheesemakers for that. I think maybe a bit more respect than now. Really, when um, simply because there's so many more people in the marketplace, so there's bound to be more duplication, bound to be more. Um, <laughs> You know things that are very similar, but um, but we were very careful not to not to cross those lines of what was rather proprietary. And yet, when we had problems, there was no community to go to. Right. Um, there, you know, there were no schools. There were no experts. Right. We had each other, and that was. Uh, and I think that formed that initial sense of community among cheesemakers that we had far more in common. Then and the real battle was not among each other. <laughs> you well, know, no. the the battle was to get those early goat cheeses into the marketplace. Have people have some kind of understanding of 
of an yeah. acceptance. Of you were you were banded were. together um, and fighting against um, you know I guess well not fighting against or fighting for uh, people right. to people right. to fighting for an awareness of yeah. those pieces in in the American marketplace particularly because there was you know there were a lot of people initially who wouldn't even taste anything made from goat milk. So there still are, unfortunately. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know where these people bad. come from, but they're out no. there because I, I had to retail our deal with them all the time. It's kind of crazy. Um, but Michael, do you um, do you find that um, you're? I mean, do you find it's it's shifted that now that there are many many makers and uh, and there are a lot of a lot of duplicates? How did you how did you start out? Were you were you by you said you were by your by yourself, or you were exploring uh, cheese styles by by yourself? Who was your mentor for a cheesemaker? I didn't, I didn't learn to make cheese on my own. Um, I, I had the pleasure of working with Ann and Bob Works, uh, who had uh, Peaked Mountain Farm down yes. in Mont, and uh, they're now retired. And uh, there's actually a nice couple that uh, went to school right right around here is picked up at Big Picture Farm down there. They've got goats and make caramels and making are making cheese. Now I like too. goats, no caramels. <laughs> yeah, um, so the, uh, Ann Worth was, uh, she was uh, very generous. She was, um, I think I made cheese with her four times, and she said, I think you've got the hang of it. Why don't you just make it next Go time? Go do it. <laughs> <laughs> I would never do that. No? Anybody <laughs> that works with me. Um, but um, but it, it was very generous of her, and I learned very, uh, I had to learn very quickly. Um, uh, and... As far as um, duplication of styles, uh, when we started here, we had already met um, Hannah Sessions and Greg Bernhardt, who had started Blue Ledge Farm, which is about yeah. seven miles from here. And a funny thing, Hannah's coming over to pick up some boxes this afternoon. Um, but Put her on the line, man. We'll talk to her. <laughs> if, I, if, if, I see, if I see her drive in, I will. Um, she, um, I, I called them and said, hey, um, my wife and I are going to be moving to uh, to, to the area, and we're and uh, going to start a farm and make uh, goat cheese. And uh, but we're not going to make uh, fresh cheese, and we're not going to make uh, mold ripened cheese, which is what they were concentrating on. And they were, you know, they were a little wary at first, which I can understand. But um, sure. um, they were also kind of supportive in a funny way, and um, and that you know. That. Well, I find just the cheese making, cheese mongering community that that sums it up for me. Like cautiously supportive. Sometimes I feel like we all are of uh, of each other. I don't know why that that just struck a chord, a chord with yeah. me. You know, I do. You, can I ask you a, a point of question? Do you feel that there are um, sometimes, and I don't, I don't think I have an opinion on this one way or another. But do you think that there are many, many cheesemakers? Sometimes too many cheesemakers, or can there never be enough cheesemakers in the news? No, I think there's never enough cheesemakers. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, that's great. Do you agree, Michael? I agree. I think, I think when the, I think I, the first time I met you was at Slow uh, Judy was at Slow Cheese in, in uh, Bra, and it was like two thousand three, <laughs> yeah, like that. yeah. And and that was to me such a revelation. Like the density of of cheesemakers from just from Piedmont. I was thinking, how large is Piedmont? How many hundreds of people make cheese here? My God! <laughs> As a, a veteran of Bra, I can attest to that. And then last year it was so big, I I actually couldn't get down some streets in there. Uh, oh my God! You know, I I do remember Michael. I remember meeting you there, and and it that was one of the amazing places that for such a big world it's also such a small one and you could go around the corner and and um 
you know, there there were the guys from Neil's yard, and you said hello just as you were walking down the street, and then you, you went down a little bit further, and there was an Irish cheesemaker, and then there were the French guys that you'd met, and blah, blah, blah. And so it was um, – it's still in some ways – a very small world, and I think there's a really strong sense of community. I still, when I have a real a real question, I still call Allison at Vermont Butter and Cheese, or I call Mary at Cypress Grove. You call or, your people, you know. You, we call our peeps, and <laughs> and they call us. That's so fantastic. I think. Uh, not quite so much uh, <laughs> as we used to. But, you know, when we began, I, I don't know how Michael feels about it, but I always felt like it was kind of just cooking, you know? Uh, Do you I feel mean, that it way? Was, it was yeah, like I what mean, you did in your kitchen. I mean, it was. it's still here very much hands-on, touchy-feely, smell it, taste it, look at it, uh, yeah, I, you I, know, I, touch I, it. I had a, a fellow uh, come... Uh, in this morning, he came and he, he shadowed me from uh, about 5.15 until about 10.30. And so I, I was reminded because he was taking pictures the whole time for this Instagram thing for Smithsonian. This that, Instagram thing. I like that. Instagram. Yeah, I, don't know. I, I, I had to ask him how it works. Oh, um, man. How's that for new school? That's right? not very uh, new school of you, man. I don't know. <laughs> um, but it, it reminded me of just, you know, he's like, so how do you, you know, he's just asking questions like, well, and he mentioned the idiosyncratic way I seem to be going about doing things. And I was like, well, I do all of these things just so I can get it the same. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. of course. And, it, you know, and that's, you know, it's just the way, you know, it's like, it is kind of like cooking. You're trying to come up with this thing, and, you, and you've got you've to respond to what's happening in front of you. And um, I don't know. You yeah, absolutely, yeah. you know, you can't... Uh, your egg whites are going to behave differently in your meringue if it's humid outside or if it's not humid. I mean, the same things apply in so many ways to the cheese. And I think one of the huge things with goat milk was because of, you know, because those weren't traditional cheeses in the U.S., and they were in Europe, um, it, we used to talk about the fact that in France, for instance, they knew exactly when the milk was going to change, and they knew what to do to adjust their cheese making to the differences in the milk. And we had to learn that, you know, over a period of time. We threw so much cheese away. Well, in the way, in a certain way, I guess um, all of us here in America are a little, uh, are a little new school, even the, uh, even the old school amongst us. Exactly. It, but it just didn't take us 600 years. To no. Well, we're, you know, we're Americans. We try to get things done yeah. pretty quick. <laughs> Look, I, I got one more question for you guys because we're going to have to go in a second. And I wish I had, like, a lot more, you know, I wish I had, like, a, I, I've really enjoyed talking to you guys. Um, um, and now my question is, um, what, is the, what is the future uh, for, for both of you and your operations? I asked this to uh, Franklin Peluso and to Jos Volto. Um, is there a difference between um, the old school and the new school? Um, and as far as family goes, Judy, what what what's going to happen when when you, God forbid you don't you don't make the cheese over there anymore? What's what? How who's going to do it for you? Oh, good God! You know, Letty asked me this fifteen twenty years ago. Okay, you got yourself into this now. How are you going to get out? <laughs> and and uh, and I still really don't have an answer. But what I do have here are um, a core of wonderful uh, all guys about four of them that I work with, and, um, and, and increasingly it's becoming their thing. They're passionate about it. They, 
they think about the cheese first. They know that I'm a perfectionist, and they hopefully are, too, and you have to be with these very fragile cheeses. They love it. So I'm hoping that, you know, they become the new the they new become face. The new... I won't go on for. I'll go on until I have to crawl over there. But uh... <laughs> Franklin said the same thing to me. It was interesting. Um, did he? Yeah, he did. And then, and Yos, um, Yos, um, Yos said something different to me. But, but Franklin said almost the same thing as you. Um, he he was uh, his son was set up to take a, to, to take over. But it sounds like you have a surrogate family of of dudes. You said that are uh, that are dudes. I love the dudes. <laughs> love the dudes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and Michael, what about you? Uh, who's going to uh, how how who how, what's the what's the long view for the Twig Farm? Is it any different from Judy's? Um, well, jeez, uh, uh, the long view is, um, gosh, I it's very hazy to be honest. Yeah, like, the, the, it's the, very the, hazy. Um, I think you know I'll, I'll, I'll keep at this for as long as I enjoy it, and then if there's uh, enough, my son wants to. Well, he's welcome to, but he hasn't really shown much interest. He's only eight, so it's not likely he would show much interest. Right. Um, and um, you know, I'll just I just kind of keep going. I'm planting a bunch of apple trees, and uh, oh, those take a long time to mature. And, yeah, they do. Uh, you know, I'll be here. <laughs> well. I wanted to say, you know, thank you to both of you guys uh, for coming on and uh, being a part of this uh, this little series. Um, you know, I feel like we learned uh, we learned three things today. Um, that we learned one that goat cheese makers really like goats, <laughs> and uh, we also learned that there can never be enough cheese makers ever, which I think is a cool thing. And uh, what I personally learned is that even though the old school and the new school um, are different, they operate by the same principles, and um, that's fantastic. And we like each other. Yeah, I think that's great. <laughs> so thank you so much, and uh, thanks, guys, for listening to another episode of Cutting the Curd live on the Heritage Radio Network, and we'll be back next week with more. Okay, I hope you guys liked that episode. Springtime goat cheese fun. If you'd like to learn more, please follow Mike Lee on Instagram at Twig Farm. For more on Judy Shad and Capriol, please follow her and her goats at Capriol Goat Cheese. Plus, you can follow us at Cutting the Curd and myself at Kara Warren. And please listen and subscribe to Cutting the Curd wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, please feel free to give us a five-star rating on the Apple Podcast app. This helps us overall and may even broaden our audience. Also, one more thing. Please check out our cheese friend Carlos Yescas' new venture, Cheese Splunker, where he's leading a cheese tour of England in September, where you can visit world-famous shops, cheesemakers, and enjoy a spectacular time abroad. Please look for more details on Instagram at Cheese Splunker. Splunker is spelled S-P-E-L-U-N-K-E-R. Cheers, and eat more cheese. Cutting the Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.